Welcome back to Sleep Before Performance Radio, Season 2, Episode 7. Today I am joined by Associate Professor Siobhan Banks. Uh, Siobhan is a co-director of the Behaviour Brain Body Research Centre at the University of South Australia. Uh, Siobhan received her PhD from Flinders University of South Australia in 2004 and undertook a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania before joining the faculty in the School of Medicine as a research assistant professor in 2006. In 2009, she returned to Australia with a fellowship for women in science from the University of South Australia. Now, Siobhan's current research sits at the nexus of biology, so she's looking at fatigue and circadian rhythms, behaviour, individual and team performance, and technology, human-centered design. Her research focus is on the impact of sleep deprivation and shift work on psychological and physiological functioning and how countermeasures can be used to prevent those deleterious effects of disturbed sleep. Now, one of the things in this episode, or the main thing we speak about in this episode, is Siobhan's um, research interests around dietary interventions. So, so many people will talk about what's the best food to eat, when should I eat, the timing of food, I work shift work, how does food affect sleep, all these different things. So Siobhan is going to get into all of this in this episode and we're going to talk about some of her uh, current initial findings in her research and some of the really interesting work that she's going to do going forward. Now Siobhan is very well qualified and experienced in this work she you know she's worked with nasa she's worked with the u.s air force she's you know worked with all these different groups and um, it's being funded by loads of these um, organizations in the u.s uh, her resume is just too long to read i've tried to jam as much as i can in there but without any further delay we're going to go into the episode with siobhan banks five four three two Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today I am joined by Siobhan Banks. Siobhan Banks is an associate professor at the University of South Australia. Did I get that right, Siobhan? Yes, you did. That's correct. God, I always get nervous. Right. (laughs) So for full disclosure, uh, for anybody listening, which there might be one or two of you out there, um, I've known Siobhan probably uh, over the last between eight and 10 years uh, around the scientific community in the area of sleep. But most recently, myself and Siobhan got to spend some time together. And uh, Siobhan, do you want to tell the listeners why we got to spend some time together? Because I marked your PhD thesis, which was a fantastic <laughs> piece of work. Oh, thanks, Siobhan. Yeah. So do you hear, do you hear that, everybody? A plus. <laughs> so A plus plus. Why don't there, there's an interesting question, Siobhan. Why don't we give grades for a PhD? It's interesting. I don't, I don't actually really know. I mean, I think there's um, different universities have a slightly different process and um, all the different theses I've been involved with usually sort of have a, a scale where it's to do with, you know, no changes whatsoever through to sort of um, minor changes, major changes. So it's more about, I suppose, um, the degree of things that perhaps need to be addressed rather than a specific grade yeah yeah it's interesting anyway i was probably uh <laughs> i suppose if some people are d minus it'd be hard for them to get a, uh, get a job in the academic. well yeah absolutely <laughs> i do know of people that have um they've said look you know you didn't quite do enough for a phd but we'll give you a master's so i know yeah. that there's those kind of people um and, and it's, you know, then the student's choice to perhaps go back and do an extra study or something like that. But it, then that's kind of like the supervisor's fault for not giving them better guidance. Do you know, Siobhan, I heard of two cases at the University of Western Australia um, where somebody had submitted a PhD thesis and it got marked and it came back with to make some changes and the person said, you know what, I'm not making them. I can't do it. Oh, Wow. That's too. You know what they just sat on it. Just said that's it. Never finished it. Never got awarded the PhD. They said they couldn't do it anymore. They were just mentally broken. <laughs> oh, you, that's would, really sad. It is really sad. You think after all that time. So. Yeah, I can understand it though. It's tricky, and sometimes you know, depending on the marker, and and you know, we we um, the universities try to make it very clear that the 
comments that you write are meant to be ones of encouragement and they're meant to be constructive, but I know sometimes some academics find it hard to write that way. So it can yeah, be pretty for, hard yeah, for students. For sure. All right. Well, we're not going to talk about academic politics. Uh, we're going to get straight to some science, but it's, <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably good to let people know what goes on. So Siobhan, could you give us a quick uh, overview of who you are and your background and what you do at the University of South Australia, please? Mm, so I am currently a co-director of the Behaviour Brain Body Research Centre. That's a relatively new centre that we have here. Um, it's the amalgamation of a couple of different groups um, that have come together really to sort of look at um, behaviour and the behaviour's role in um, chronic illness. Um, and obviously sleep is one of those behaviours. And so we have a number of people that have expertise around sleep. We have others that have expertise around healthy ageing, um, behaviours to do with um, uh, what happens when you're in, um, say, remission with cancer, those kinds of things, what it's how to get back to work, um, workplace safety. So it's quite a broad kind of a, a group of researchers, but really with the idea that we're dealing with um, a behavioural approach. Um, my background is in psychology and I kind of had a bit of a convoluted path to get where I am. Um, I won't go into all the, the crazy details, but I came from much more of a um, art kind of background and kind of almost fell into science accidentally and um, sleep particularly and just really loved the idea of marrying um, behaviour with psychology and a little bit of physiology. Um, and so when I discovered that, it really set me on a whole new path, uh, which has taken me overseas. And I've, I've worked overseas with a number of different um, researchers. I was at the University of Pennsylvania for a number of years, working with Professor David Dinges. Um, and I still have close collaborations with some of the people that used to work um, in the lab there, in particular, um, Professor Hans van Dongen, who's now at Washington State University. So we have a um, kind of broad spread of, of collaborators, and um, but really all focused around kind of sleep and um, sleep behaviours and how that impacts um, your daytime function. Yeah. And I have to admit, Siobhan, uh, the more people I'm talking to in the sleep world, the more times I hear your name come up. So you're probably more popular than you think. Uh, last, <laughs> <laughs> last week I was talking to a lady uh, called Melissa Malice. Yes, I know Melissa very well. And she brought your name up as well. And I was like, mm, Siobhan might be the Kevin Bacon of the sleep world. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that would be interesting. That would be very, very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go so Siobhan um, your research or that group you're with is very broad as you said and your research kind of spans a number of different areas and it's got kind of tentacles into everything you in your own right as a scientist and a researcher what's the area that you're most interested in and where do you kind of uh, where do you get your, your joy from researching what's your, what's your number one area you love yeah really probably in the way that um Sleep interacts with our daytime function and health, but in particular for um, shift workers, so uh, or people who have um, disrupted sleep, really due to kind of what they what they have to deal with on a on a daily basis. So for most people, that's around their work schedules, mm. and so I'm really keen to look at ways not only kind of what the consequences are for people, but um, what, what can people do about it? Because obviously getting, you know, eight hours sleep in a 24-hour period is not necessarily possible for everybody uh, for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, what, what, what can we do? Um, and that might range from business leaders through to, to, to shift workers dealing with, with patients or heavy machinery. Um, and, and also then, you know, not just about their, their safety and performance, but also about... Um, health and so what can we do to make sure we keep that workforce healthy um, and uh, kind of performing optimally. So Siobhan we talk about shift work can you kind of just um, in probably a simplistic way can you give us a di the difference between or tell us what is shift work and then what's the difference between shift work and irregular hours and then 
maybe like people who work extended hours, and you kind of alluded to it there with maybe business leaders and so on. Um, how how would you de- how would you define each one of those individually? Yeah, they're, they're, you're right. They're quite different. So you can have um, uh, shift work, which has sort of got a very broad um, definition, which is just anything that's outside of a typical nine to five. Yeah. But um, really, that probably means people who are working through the night or having to get up early to, to, to come into work early and do morning shifts. Or and, and, and those shift patterns could be different. So you could have people that are working all nights or a rotating kind of shift pattern, but something where it's not um, typically regular. So you don't necessarily go to work each day knowing that your work days kind of kind of be between eight and, you know, five or six, which is, you know, sort of for most, some people might start a little tiny bit earlier and finish a little bit earlier. Um, But that's a very regular pattern, which means you're less likely to have sort of circadian disruption. Whereas somebody that works long hours, that could be anybody from, say, the business leader who's getting in quite early um, or, and, and working quite late. So it could be someone who's um, self-employed, for example, who has to um, be um, with their workers during the day but then perhaps working on books or accounting or whatever through to the evening. It could be someone who's a farmer um, who works unusual long hours because they're the only ones uh, who, who kind of have to take care of all the business. Um, but it also could be emergency service workers um, or the military that um, have to do sort of do these more um, long operations. So it might be because they have to fight a fire or deal with the aftermath of a hurricane or yeah. a cyclone down here or... Um, you know, if they're in a in, in some kind of uh, combat theatre where they were having to um, sort of sustain their performance over a longer period of time. So it's a very broad category when we talk about probably shift work and irregular work hours. It can cover a multitude of things, given those examples. And also then you have the whole thing about like on-call workers, like you said, with emergency services or, you know, electricians or plumbers or any of these services. So it's quite it's quite broad and probably would capture yeah. more people than we think. It would. And it's really anybody that perhaps has their, um, you know, eight hours, you know, that supposedly we're meant to set aside for sleep in a 24-hour period sort of squeezed for various different reasons to do with work. Yeah. So so saying that, Siobhan, the, the, the old question we always get asked in the sleep world, and I'd be interested to hear your take on this, is, well, you know, that's okay because I just get used to working. Um, I, I, I've adapted or I get used to working nights or these weird hours and I've actually, you know, changed my body over time. What's your take on it? What's your take on that step? And do you think it's correct or what's your thoughts? Well, it's really interesting because I still think that, you know, there's an underlying, underlying biology that governs our sleep and performance and our ability to, um, perform optimally and that's probably an important word in all of this so um, sure people can get by on on less sleep um, and yes you can um, develop a number of strategies to uh, cope with working unusual hours but there's always your underlying biology and that pretty much is to drive sleep at night when it's dark and to be awake during the day when it's light and so um, with that biology kind of governing everything, even though you might feel like you become accustomed to working a particular unusual schedule, um, there's always going to be those daily rhythms in your ability to perform well. And so you can be highly trained. <clears throat> you can get used to working through the night. Um, you know, surgeons become very highly trained and experienced in doing all kinds of unusual surgeries, you know, through the night. Um, And uh, there's all sorts of different ways that I've heard, you know, people say they cope with these kinds of schedules. But I still think there's that underlying biology, which is going to mean that at certain times of the 24-hour period, you're going to perform well and others that you aren't going to perform well. So Siobhan, if we have these underlying biological rhythms that we've spoken on in previous episodes but for other people who may have not heard them we you know you're we're talking here about a decline in body temperature overnight we're talking about you know um 
the release of melatonin. We're, we're talking about these kind of what we get referred to as circadian rhythm uh, across a 24-hour period, which basically, you know, is saying we're at low performance or low physical and cognitive performance between, like, let's say, 2 and 7 in the morning, roughly. Um, so if, we, if we've got this happening, um, does this get worse if we're doing something that's very boring or is it easier to cope with if we're doing something that's more stimulating such as you know a surgeon or a firefighter or it's a very reactive type task does that seem to be able to help increase cortisol and to override this or is there any kind of information on that it's interesting because i think what's available as evidence versus kind of what people have experienced um, so, so what we know is that certainly um, tasks that are very monotonous and require us to maintain a high level of vigilance while just sort of watching and waiting for something happening. Such as, such um, as, such as driving, for example, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, driving on a straight road, so, you know, um, without much stimulation is very, very difficult and very taxing. Um, even though you're not physically doing very much, it's actually um, the hardest thing to kind of stay awake, you know, if, if, as you're saying, you're trying to do that at five o'clock in the morning. Um, It's it's a very difficult thing. Even during the day when we're, um, our our drive for alertness is really high, doing these vigilance tasks is quite taxing. So involved in tasks where there's... um, other things going on. So as you say, uh, fighting a fire or um, having to deal with a busy schedule, say, during the day at work um, or even during the night, you know. So if it's a very, I've I've talked to many nurses um, who say that um, they're, they're much happier if the shift is busy and they're doing lots of things and they're up on their feet and they're moving about. It becomes very draining and taxing when they're just sitting and waiting and and that's when they feel the most fatigued and the most tired yeah but i think then then there's also um people like the surgeon you mentioned um pilots or other very highly trained individuals who know their job very very well and there's sort of muscle memory that's involved in in what they do and then some of those tasks happen kind of almost automatically so they're able to maintain a very high level of performance while fatigued because they're so well trained yeah and i think that's an interesting point that's why i think um when you talk about safety management systems integration i think like drew dawson has spoken about this before he calls it error proofing if i'm uh not mistaken but it's that kind of thing of the fact that and i my probably interpretation of it is it's exactly like what you're saying with pilots or military where it's very process oriented and driven and people have had extensive drilling so to speak in the procedures and and what to do that does become muscle memory so when you do go into those periods of cognitive decline that that sort of condition actually takes over and i think that's a very good argument for people working shift work to undergo undergo significant amount significant amount of training and rehearsals or scenarios that allows you to keep those skills kind of you know on an autopilot so to speak yeah. I mean, I suppose the only, the only problem with that is when something very unexpected goes wrong. And one of the things that we know that is very challenging um, when sleep deprived or in the middle of the night is problem solving. And we tend to get stuck or perseverate on one sort of course of action. Um, so within training, it's, it's then good to also throw up some of those unusual scenarios um, and to do that while people are tired, yeah. to understand um, what that's going to feel like and how to manage that. Because I, I think sometimes then being extremely trained means you're going to go down one particular path. And that's great if you're doing open heart surgery. Um, but then you need to be able to have a, a degree of problem solving um, so that when that unusual alarm goes off, um, you're able to um, manage that better. Yeah, that's a good point. On a previous episode, um, we had Major Bram Connolly on, who was an ex-Special Forces uh, commando um, leader. And that's what he spoke about as well as that, you know, ability to make decisions at those kind of awkward times at night. But then also in their, in their training, how they had lots of different scenarios as well that they would deal with 
to um, to try to get them used to that. And so the scenarios would always be different that was given to them by the uh, directing staff. So there was never, you know, you were never kind of just repeating the same pattern. There was always something something different in it. Yeah, I think that's important. So, so Siobhan, when when people are undertaking this shift work in irregular hours and, and sort of, let's say, crazy hours, um, what other strategies do people kind of use um, to maintain vigilance? Because a lot of people talk about they have a secret diet that they use or they eat at certain times or they drink a certain amount of coffee or they use energy drinks or they have, you know, the list goes on and on and everybody swears that it works for them. Um, what what's out there sort of on the terms of nutrition and diet and how it can support shift work or actually even make it worse? Yeah. So um, we're doing a lot of work at the moment in uh, my group here around ways that we can be a bit more strategic around um, caffeine use, around when to have meals and snacks and the type of meals and snacks to have, um, knowing obviously that, you know, as we've talked about, there's people on all these kinds of different schedules and so at various different times they're going to be affected. What can they do um, um, to help kind of maintain a higher level of alertness? And so we've looked at um, timing of meals and content of meals in, in particular in a number of studies um, for people who work the night shift. And we found some very interesting results. We're partway through a um, National Health and Medical Research Council grant. Um, so we're still collecting data, but from the performance side, we finished the data collection on the performance side um, and we're nearly done on the health side. But on the performance side, what we see is that having a normal kind of dinner-sized meal in the middle of the night, which is what a lot of shift workers do, instead of having, you know, they sort of get up in the late afternoon, um, maybe might have a snack with their family, but then will take um, most of their food with them to have on shift as kind of like dinner. Yeah. Um, but that meal um, really impairs performance, not only directly afterwards, but through the rest of the shift. Mm. Um, so we see this across a range of different cognitive performance domains. And we've compared that to a snack and not eating at all. Um, so obviously it's a little extreme to think of not eating at all um, while working a night shift and, and perhaps, you know, just having water. Um, but what we find is that it really helps people stay on task. Um, what's good news is that the snack condition um, was very similar in their performance to the no eating condition. And so it means then that people can still have a small meal. So we're talking something that's maybe like half a sandwich, um, uh, a small salad and some nuts or um, a small yogurt and some nuts and a piece of fruit or something like that. So a small snack um, that can satisfy some of those feelings of, of hunger but don't impact your ability to perform well for the rest of the shift. So basically, basically the people having a snack would consume their main meal um, at home before, you know, as normal, let's say 7 p.m., they would consume their normal meal then. Correct. And then, and then snack. And so would the, would the snack be just once throughout the night or is there a frequency every X Well, this is... Yeah, this is our next sort of interesting question. So at the moment in this study, it's just one snack um, at the same time uh, as the other group got their big meal. Um, and and you're right, it's it's readjusting all the cuts. So everyone gets to eat the same things, but it's uh, for the snack condition and the no eating or fasting condition, it's keeping all those calories to the daytime. So it's really about the idea of saying, look, we're not trying to say don't eat that hamburger, but just don't eat it in the middle of the night. That's yeah. kind of what we're getting at. Um, and so we're, we're finding that people, um, a lot of shift workers actually naturally do this. So when we go out and talk to people, because when you're awake during the night, you often have some gastrointestinal upset. A lot of people aren't eating very large amounts, but we do see that full spectrum. So we see some people that eat, very big meals in the middle of the night versus all the way down to kind of not eating very much at all. And sometimes it depends on how busy they are. 
Um, a lot of shift workers do describe kind of grazing on things throughout the night. So that's really our next study that we'd like to do is how can we kind of refine this snacking behaviour um, and then also look to be what is kind of the best recommendations for those snacks. So is it having some, some nuts? Is it um, steering clear of dairy? What are sort of the things that make people not only perform better but also feel better? Yeah, because as you were talking there, uh, Siobhan, I was thinking about times when I've done night shift and it was boring, uh, when it was pretty quiet, we'd start ordering takeaway food. Yes. I <laughs> would complete boredom and you're just eating it then just to pass time and it's something to kind of break up the night or get you through the next hour or so and it becomes this kind of, yeah, just time killer really. Yeah, it helps you stay yeah. awake, it kind of focuses your alertness, you're doing something. Um, but it's often, often not terribly mindful eating and you're kind of like snacking on various different things. But what we have found as well is that people do um, often, you know, if it's a group scenario that people are working together, so around a nursing ward or um, at a, a fire station, you know, with firefighters or whatever, often the, the, the food serves a real social coping kind of mechanism as well. So I think it's important to take into consideration the behaviours that are around eating and what other things that are, are very important for coping around sharing and discussing the stresses of work that we often do as we're eating. So we're very mindful of not wanting to remove some of those good coping mechanisms that are associated with food. It's really giving people options about mm. better, uh, more strategic ways to have meals and, and eat more effectively over a night shift. And, and obviously then, Siobhan, this leads into the work that's come out like of Ivan Cowder's group in, in the US around the link with you know, um, body weight, diabetes, and so on. If if your research can help people maintain a healthy body weight, obviously we're going to lower those rates of obesity. We're going to lower the prevalence or potential prevalence of a sleep disorder. And then we're also going to lower the possibility of uh, things like diabetes, which would obviously link into the overall goal of this interdisciplinary group that you're working within. Exactly. And that's, and that's part of what, um, you know, this study is also looking at is what is the effectiveness for health around these different eating strategies. And so it could be that um, for health, the best thing is to completely fast and to not eat anything at night when we're not supposed to be eating, we're supposed to be sleeping. Yeah. Um, but it also could be that um, we need to have a bit of a balance there between what's good for performance and what makes people feel good versus um, what's optimal for health. And so once we get a more complete picture um, across all of those things, I think it's really important then, uh, a really good you know, way to be able to have advice for people um, so you're not kind of just targeting one portion of the overall um, task that people have to do. Yeah, because in my mind's eye when you're speaking there, I'm thinking, I'm visualising kind of a matrix, you know, you're working, you're working night shift, 12 midnight to 8 o'clock in the morning, here's your options. You know, the best option is going to be possibly have nothing. The second best option, it kind of highlighted in yellow, is going to be have a snack at 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. And then the worst scenario is going to be have a main meal at 2 o'clock in the morning. So you kind of, you pick your poison. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. so, exactly. I think yeah. it's just about giving people evidence-based options um, because so much in our field is a little bit sort of myth-based or it's based on one study that maybe isn't even conducted at the same time of day that you're trying to advise people on. Um, and a lot of that is around caffeine consumption. So we know um, a lot about caffeine consumption kind of through the day and what coffee does to us, but there's less studies to kind of show what are really good strategic ways of consuming caffeine in the night um, yeah. and for your different purposes. So exactly to your matrix point of you know, what is your main purpose for taking that caffeine um, and how long do you want to be awake for um, and are you worried about jeopardising your daytime sleep? So it's all of those sorts of things, I think, taken into consideration um, where maybe the best advice for shift workers is that they do have a cup of coffee before driving home if the drive is long, you know, and so... Um, we, we just don't have enough evidence to kind of say um, completely avoid caffeine altogether if we don't know how long it's going to take them to drive home after shift at sort of six, seven in the morning. Um, 
and, and what the impacts are for their daytime sleep. So there's a lot of these sorts of nuances to give the best advice and that's what we're trying to target. All right. So let's take two scenarios here, Siobhan, if we can. Can we take a scenario where um, the first one is where someone is working night shift again, midnight, let's say to 8 a.m. in the morning. They've got a 10-minute commute home. And we'll just say for argument's sake, that could be, you know, either, let's say it's a 10-minute drive. And they leave at 8 o'clock in their home by 10 past 8. And they generally like to go straight to bed when they get home, shut the blinds, get into bed and get as much sleep as they can. So for that person... When should they stop consuming caffeine or what's the period they should consume caffeine during their night shift? Yeah, that's really interesting because the other caveat as well is the person kind of needs to know their sensitivity. So um, going into this, then you'd assume the person knows if they're very sensitive or not because if they're very sensitive, then you might want to have a coffee when you first go on shift and then no others. But if you're not so sensitive and you've also... um, perhaps through no fault of your own, not been able to sleep very well. So you're kind of um, carrying a considerable sleep pressure. Then you might want to have a couple of coffees through the shift. Um, And you could probably go a little later because what our research has found is that if you're carrying a considerable sleep pressure and you're very tired, you'll go to sleep anyway even if you have some caffeine still on board you might delay the onset of your deeper sleep but your overall kind of sleep amounts and this quality of your sleep what will be unchanged so it really is kind of there's a number of things leading up to that shift that i think you'd need to take in consideration okay so this is that's an interesting point about sensitivity and so there is tests you can do people could do themselves about sensitivity but probably one of the most basic ones is just trial and error themselves to see um, yeah. how caffeine would affect them and maybe the timing because we do know that in general um that caffeine takes anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour to peak in your system and then takes up to 4 hours to get a half to, for its half life to kind of dissipate within the in the in the system um, so for some people it could be four or five hours where for other people exactly. um, they can have a cappuccino and go straight to sleep yeah yeah and 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 you're, you're exactly right so some of that can be around sensitivity some of that can be around how super tired they are but you would normally i'd probably recommend that if you didn't have a very long commute and you like to go to sleep straight away that um probably having your caffeine more in the early part of your shift is probably more advisable. Okay. And so the second scenario then, Siobhan, someone's doing the same shift, 12, 12 midnight to 8 a.m. the next morning, but now to have an hour commute, you know, let's say they're living an hour outside of somewhere like Melbourne, they've got to drive to Geelong. Um, what should they do in general then for caffeine? Is it, should they be consuming it right before they go, a period before they go? Should they not have it for days before they go? Well, I think it's um, what what you're suggesting is that um, it takes a little while to get into your system. So if they finished work at eight, I'd probably be having still having you know a coffee maybe at like um, six or something. Nothing terribly strong, yeah. But something that gives them just that little bit of a boost while they're heading home um, and gives them that extra piece of alertness, especially since that you know they're going to be driving through you know some pretty full on peak hour traffic. And they're going to want to be kind of um, their reaction times to be fast and kind of on the ball. Um, and so I'd, I'd suggest for them that they perhaps do have, you know, one of our Australian instant coffees, if you can stomach that. That's probably only about <laughs> 80, 80 to 100 milligrams of, of caffeine in it um, rather than that cappuccino. So you might have the cappuccino more, again, at the beginning of your shift but not necessarily have that towards the end, perhaps take something that's a little lighter in, in caffeine um, or even be drinking um, something that is, uh, you know, has caffeine, but it's more like so tea, um, those kinds of things that are, still have caffeine, but a small amount. Yeah. This isn't the ABC here, Siobhan. You can send this cafe 43, McConnell, you can send whatever you want. Because I, I'm with you. I can barely stomach them, but they do get me through sometimes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I mean, what's good is that they're actually a smaller amount of coffee, uh, caffeine, sorry. And they, um, it's, it's, it's pretty consistent, which is unfortunate with some of the 
um, like cappuccino type, yeah. depending on the bean and the roast and the grind and how they've made it. The caffeine you're going to get is a little unpredictable. Yeah. So Siobhan, what about now we see a lot of people using um, uh, pre-workout drinks, energy drinks, um, such as the Red Bulls or the Mudders or the Energies and all these type of things. Um, they're laced with sort of caffeine and other stuff. How are they affecting sleep for shift workers? Have you, have you looked at that? We haven't looked specifically at those energy drinks, but knowing what, you know, the other research that's been done, um, they can, they can be rather insidious because people don't necessarily think about the amount of caffeine that's in them. Mm. Um, you know, and for other countries where there's drinks like Mountain Dew and things like that, that, you know, have, lots of caffeine i think that the kinds of things that people <clears throat> tend to consume during the day or perhaps even in the evening without realizing their impact on sleep so even for non-shift workers um just consuming them at sort of odd times of day so i think it's being a little bit aware of what you put in your body and not all of those drinks have the amounts of caffeine in the nutritional panel on the side so but you can get information um on the internet so using the good old Google machine, um, you can find out a lot about what is in all these different drinks, how much, um, and then, you know, really then thinking, well, if it's a lot of caffeine, I probably need to be keeping it relatively away from my sleep. Um, smaller amounts I can probably manage, but then it comes down to exactly what you were saying before about perhaps doing some of those studies on yourself to see um, how they affect you, how that combination of sugar and the caffeine and some of those other ingredients, grana and all those sorts of things, how they affect you. Mm. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's great to hear you kind of say that because you kind of confirm my own, uh, my own kind of recommendations to people, which is like, it, it does depend. And when you say it to people about like, you know, the diet nutrition overnight, you got to play around with what works best for you. You got to play around with the timing of the caffeine. You got to play around with sort of your um, your kind of movement, and that leads me into my one of my final questions. Is Siobhan, is have you looked at sort of the the movement throughout the night shift? So people who are basically getting X amount of steps um, in a night, let's say ten thousand steps across the shift, compared to somebody sitting in like a, an operation center, kind of staring at a screen, monitoring stuff, um, which would be like air traffic control or these new kind of remote operation centers for mining or a transportation. Uh, company. Yeah, no, I haven't specifically looked at kind of activity through the night, but I do know of some fantastic studies that have been done. Um, and and also, I suppose it's that um, what what you kind of know intuitively around it is that um, your alertness is better if you're standing rather than sitting. Um, and certainly that moving around um, will improve your ability to kind of stay on task. Um, but the real kind of nitty-gritty, again, that evidence broken down um, between, say, for example, what you're saying about the 10,000 steps versus just sitting, I, those kinds of studies haven't been done in, in really um, close kind of examination. What we do know is that there's um, some improvements in alertness around um, getting up, moving around, um, running on the spot, those kinds of things will help your alertness. And I, and I do know that when people often um, in situations like air traffic control, for example, when they have their rest breaks and that kind of thing, they're sort of encouraged to do some of that more stimulation um, rather than just going for a coffee. Um, but those, those sorts of um, changes in alertness state are actually quite transient. And so the person who's been busily walking around, say, a nursing ward, you know, ratcheting up all those steps, if they're tired and then they sit a, a, for a period, all that benefit of that exercise can go. So it's, it's about either um, keeping that activity going or making sure that you, you get up regularly and make use of that um, change in alertness state that comes with standing up and moving around. Yeah. Well, um, Siobhan, what's your thoughts on this subject about um, <laughs> maybe putting in some ancillary-type fitness equipment in, in control rooms or other areas like that, such as a stationary bike? 
a pool table, uh, somewhere to play table tennis, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. So I think it would really depend on the workplace and the behaviours and the culture of what what people are doing. So for some environments um, where they're kind of just killing time, something like a pool table um, or some bikes, I think might be really helpful. It comes down to that behavioural change, that nasty kind of thing where people often don't want to or find it very difficult to change up their habits. Um, and so even though there's, a, you know, you'd, you'd get some benefits from jumping on a bike for five minutes, I think it's hard to implement those kinds of changes. Um, so I think when we want to bring in something like this to the workplace, you want to make it really easy, something that's very acceptable, something that's quick. So probably, and, and something that can be done in whatever clothes people you know have to wear to their work yeah um and so some workplaces are going to lend themselves much more easily to a particular type of activity um but i bet some of these uh, benefits could be got by just you know you know quickly jogging on the spot or doing some jumping jacks or even just walking briskly you know around a, a space um so i think there's some of the it would be great to get some information from some of the uh, people studying exercise, I think, on what could be done at different levels and for people's different fitness levels um, so that where you're able to kind of take in uh, all of that um, benefit across different people in different workplaces. Yeah. So my favourite one, Siobhan, if you're interested, uh, when I was in the sleep lab, overnight running studies when everybody was going to bed and it got quiet particularly between three and six in the morning when it was hardest to stay awake was ear squats lunges <laughs> push-ups and then i found a whole host of shadow boxing follow-along videos on youtube and because we had a big screen in the control room i could put that up there whilst, <laughs> whilst i could still watch everybody in the room from the monitors because we had five people in there and i would shadow box along for like two or three minutes, pause, check the monitors again a bit more in depth and then go again for another three or four minutes and then pause again. But it was perfect. And that's, again, because of like stuff that I would like to do. Also, we had the space to do it and the facil yeah. facilities as well. But I know other people just will come in and not, not barely move. I'm like, oh, I, you know, there's no way I'm doing that. But um, yeah, some people will come in, you know, half five in the morning, six, whatever, and I'd be in there doing, you know, shadow boxing around the control, control them look quite, quite weird but um yeah that was that was my <laughs> that was my that was my tip or trick so if anybody else that was your, your thing that was my thing yeah so if anybody else is listening you got some good tips or tricks please email them to me and um we'll look into them <laughs> i think anything that the person likes and that they could do on a regular basis a bit like other exercise yeah um what's gonna what's gonna you know float your boat that's the that's the thing that and keeps you going that's that's what you need to do yeah, I remember years ago seeing guys do a jigsaw. I was like, that is the worst thing I could do now. If I did a jigsaw, I'd fall asleep. Yeah, they were just all <laughs> sitting around this jigsaw. I was like, no way. Yeah. Can't do a jigsaw, can't read. Got to move. You got to move, yeah. So Siobhan, finally, um, given, given all that great bit of uh, advice we've spoken about, what would be some of the key takeaways you would give to people, you know, listening to this episode who are working shift worker regular hours in relation to probably you know, more nutrition um, at the moment and, and timing of caffeine. What sort of three or four takeaway points you might be able to give them? Yeah, I think um, really the important thing to recognise is that timing is really important. Um, and, and certainly for what you eat, timing and the, um, and the amount of food is going to really be key. And, and, and that's far more important than really what you eat um so uh, you know avoiding eating uh, over the night shift or having kind of um snacks healthy snacks um things that are uh, lower calorie because um, it really does seem to be from our research that it's the amount of energy that you intake over the night shift that um is problematic for both health and performance so if you can minimize that um also from other research not so much ours but other research it's around kind of the window that you the window of your eating so the timing of your eating so 
um, not eating over long, long periods or continually snacking almost through the whole 24 hours. You know, if you can maintain a narrower window of eating time. So, for example, um, you know, 12 hours during the day, 10 hours during the day. Um, so really trying to um, uh, limit when you eat and, and kind of the amount of eating through the night shift when we would normally be asleep. Um, obviously, that's going to be difficult for some shift work type professions, firefighters and that kind of thing where they've got to keep um, a lot of energy up through the night. And so that's when obviously um, some different kind of workplace practices are, are important. So I know that a lot of fire stations will have, you know, a big meal in the evening, um, but then not necessarily eat anything through the rest of the night. Um, and then around caffeine as well, I think it's um, getting to know your body a little bit, understanding that, that caffeine um, is a drug and that it, and that it can um, affect people quite um, a lot or, or not, depending on their personal kind of genetic makeup, but also how, how tired they are. And if you're extremely tired, having that coffee before a drive home, in a way, regardless of how long it is, um, could be the really important thing to get you home safely. Uh, and so um, knowing, what, you know, I'd play around a little bit with how close you have that coffee to the end of your shift and your sleep um, and, uh, and, and just making sure that then you're staying alert on shift but also thinking of your drive home, your commute home and, um, and being safe for that as well. That's great. Awesome. Thanks, Siobhan. Um, if anybody is listening to the episode, Siobhan, and they want to get in contact with you about maybe doing some studies or work or they're interested uh, a little bit more, how can people get a, uh, in contact with you? Are you on Twitter or any of their social media channels? Yes, so um, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, uh, we're also, if you uh, Google my name uh, with the with, uh, University of South Australia, then you can see our web pages for the centre um, and myself, and then my email um, is there as well. So if people are interested in uh, contacting me about any of those things you mentioned, there are all the different ways that I can be found. And it's Siobhan, S-I-O-B-H-A-N. <laughs> Correct. The Gaelic way. It's an Irish way, an Irish name. And so there'll be about 500 misspellings that into Google. So we're just putting that out there now. S-I-O-B-H-A-N. Siobhan Banks. And Siobhan is probably the smiliest sleep scientist I know. And when you look up Siobhan and see pictures of her, you'll see Siobhan's head beaming across the internet. Always. <laughs> I've, never seen you, I've never seen you with a, with a scowl on your face or a sad face. I'm sure it happens every now and then, but I've never seen you with one. So... Um, yeah. I'm sure my children would think that I have a scowly face from time to time. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, just tell him you're just practicing your art from your acting days. <laughs> yes, yeah, something like that. Siobhan, thank you very much for your time today. I know you're really busy, so I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And um, yeah, thank you once again. Not at all. I feel like there's lots of things we could have talked about. So, um, uh, very happy to talk again at a later time. Thanks, Siobhan. Feel it, come
This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is brought to you by Orbiz. Orbiz are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries. They facilitate turnaround, transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement. Now, Orbis are growing their global presence across the Asia-Pacific region, Europe, Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth, through to operating system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety, quality and productivity. So what this means for your business, typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost. Who can beat that? Increasing capacity utilization, throughput, increase in revenue, profitability, and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology, joining engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors and industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing, and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbiz.io, that's Orbiz, O-R-B-I-Z.io, for more information, get in contact with them to organise the quality systems to the test against the national standards. They provide commitment and dedication by providing you a high quality service. Now I've worked with these guys before, they are excellent. Um, they are a very diligent business and one that is trusted here in Western Australia. Sleep WA is one of the only sleep and respiratory centres to provide holistic care and treatment for all sleep and respiratory disorders, not just obstructive sleep apnea, which many people would have hear, heard about in, uh, in the news or in, in the scientific literature or even on this podcast. 
So Sleep WA believe that all patients deserve compassion, support, multiple treatment options and education to allow them to actively participate in their own journey to better health. Sleep WA provides a comprehensive service to diagnose and recommend treatment of all respiratory diseases and sleep disorders. This includes rare sleep disorders and those complicated by cardiovascular disease. The Sleep WA philosophy is to offer patients expert diagnosis, effective therapy and supportive guidance on the road to better health and sleep. They are a leader in respiratory and sleep medicine and provide the following service at locations throughout Western Australia. Consultation with experienced specialists, comprehensive respiratory testing for lung disease, asthma and allergies, inpatient sleep studies, home-based sleep studies, that's pretty handy, insomnia management programs for insomnia and circadian disorders, and fatigue management programs to reduce risk and improve health in the workplace. So get started on your journey towards better health and sleep today and head over to Sleep WA, that's WA for Western Australia, and get in contact with Dion and Jack over there. This episode is also brought to you finally by Fatigue Science. The Fatigue Science Ready Band is a wearable device that helps you improve safety and your performance through the science of sleep. The Ready Band is a way more than just a sleep tracker. It's the world's only sleep measurement tool that's paired with safety, a biomechanical fatigue model, which has a predictive algorithm. So what that means is actually predict into the future what your performance is going to be based upon your data. This was initially developed by the US Army Research Lab and was uh, built to improve the performance of soldiers in operational environments. Now this device has been adapted to work in elite athletes and industrial workers. This is also a device that I have validated in the laboratory myself and I have used extensively in industry and research applications. As listeners of this podcast, you probably know that restorative sleep is about more than just the numbers of hours of sleep you get, factors like when you sleep, how much sleep that you have accrued, and even your local um, geographical location, so a sunset, the time you go to bed, the time the sun comes up, all of these things are all these different factors in chronobiology um, that affect your performance. So this ready band was developed to incorporate all these factors that can really help you understand the real impact of sleep on your life. So ReadyBand not only helps you track changes to your fatigue over time, but also allows you to discover new ways to achieve personal fatigue improvement goals. So you can actually measure the improvements that you're making uh, as you go. Now, ReadyBand is is relied on by lots of different organizations and they've got a very impressive resume. So winners of the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks have used this, the Chicago Cubs have used this, military special forces and workers who operate in uh, long shifts in dangerous environments such as tunneling underground, mining, oil and gas. Uh, it's been used in elite sports such as rugby, basketball, um, it's been used at the Australian Institute of Sport, it's been used in uh, elite MMA athletes who compete in the UFC, so it's a wide variety of applications. So if fatigue is important to you and your organization, whether you're a sports team or industrial workforce, head to fatiguescience.com, that's fatiguescience.com, to speak to a member of their team and to learn more about how the ReadyBand can improve safety and performance in your organization. <laughs> 